and welcome to The Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis. I'm Dr. Matt Varis, and this is episode three with Dr. Graham Ruby. Graham is one of my new coworkers, and I've had an amazing time getting to know him and working on some projects together. It really is incredible, the type of people at Calico, and Graham really exemplifies it. Now, since he's a professional scientist, we talk about what it's like to run a lab. But really, we talked about his journey to get here. In his training, he switched fields multiple times, which is quite strange in science. And we also talk about the arts, music and literature, and how that can actually help the scientific pursuit. We seem to both think that when scientists use both their left and their right brain together, that's where truly exceptional science occurs. And so, if that sounds of interest, enjoy listening along. If not, hopefully one of the future episodes will be of interest. Hey, Graham. Good morning, and thanks for doing this with me. Absolutely, Matt. Great to see, great to see you. Awesome. Um, so, I wanted to have this conversation, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Just for the people listening, uh, we're speaking to Dr. Graham Ruby today. He's a coworker at Calico, a principal investigator, so he runs his own lab. And so I'd like to talk to him about kind of what he does and how he got there, because uh, it was been quite a long journey along the way. Um, so would you be able to just say sort of broad strokes what it is you do as a, a leader of a lab? Um, yeah, so um, it's uh, basically... Um, uh, I'm, I'm a scientist and um, a biologist, and I am primarily focused on um, data, um, data analysis, so like bioinformatics. And um, that, that can mean a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, mm-hmm. So I do some, uh, some genomics, um, I do some uh, physiology, some like just sort of biostatistics kind of stuff, um, uh, genetic analysis. Um, and as, um, a group leader, um, uh, I sort of also organize, um, projects and, um, uh, have some, uh, managerial responsibilities. Right. And so you're a scientist. Did you always want to grow up to be a scientist or was that something that got stimulated later? When did you kind of notice that spark? If you can remember, um, uh, for the most part, I mean, um, uh, when I, so one thing, one thing about me is that I have a uh, type one diabetes, which I got when I was nine mm-hmm. and that was, um, you know, that was a bummer when it happened, yeah. um, but it, you know, it was sort of like a, an early exposure to, um, uh, because, you know, you don't learn about physiology really usually, at, you know, when you're nine years old, yeah. but you know, you get a disease, you learn a little bit about it. And, mm-hmm. um, even though it was a bummer, um, it was also kind of interesting and it gave me, um, I think, sort of an early appreciation for the um, the power of like basic research, basic understanding of how biology works, how that can you know have an impact on on people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so that really definitely got me interested in biology and science. And I was always kind of a science nerdy kid, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I was also, I mean, in, in sort of, you know, as a kid and sort of in high school, I was 
I, I was I was really more into the arts. I was more of a like a um, sort of music and art nerd than I mm-hmm. was um, a science nerd. Yeah. Um, and that sort of switched when I went to went to college um, in, in a lot of ways. But um, uh, the what I really didn't appreciate about science in high school or in the early years of college, but started to appreciate more once I joined a lab was how creative of an endeavor science is. Yeah. And, you know, when you first start doing science, you're doing a lot of um, uh, sort of memorizing facts because there's such a long (laughs) history of, um, you know, amazing discoveries that have been made about the universe. Um, Yeah. And and you learn so many fascinating things and that's, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, But you don't really sort of approach it in terms of, uh, um, you know, sort of charting new territory and having to be creative about how you would design an experiment. And you can do sort of science fair projects, but at that point you're not really entrenched enough in the science to really be super creative um, or do something that's really, you know, sort of at a cutting edge of getting into a question that nobody knows the answer to. Usually we're kind of question that sort of, you don't know the answer to because (laughs) you're just in like middle school or high school. Right. So you like, there's a limited amount of stuff that you know, and um, you know, you have sort of limited skill looking things up at that Mm -hmm. point. (laughs) But, um, uh, but, but yeah, you, um, uh, once you get more into, into science, you really, it really is a sort of, um, a creative thing, sort of designing experiments, sort of like its own special kind of art project. Yeah. Um, uh, it has, you know, some more constraints than, um, (laughs) usually an, an art, you know, I mean, artists have to deal with, um, uh, you know, critics, but to some extent they can just like ignore the critics. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the sort of the, the scientific method is sort of like an abstract critic that you, that you can't ignore. Yeah. Um, but you know, and, but it's also that, you know, science involves a lot of, um, a lot of writing, which mm-hmm. was something that is not a big part of science curricula up until yeah. you start, start to get more, more advanced. And so That's actually true. thinking back to my high school education, um, you know, like, like I said, I was more, more into the, you know, the arts and everything and the, the AP and, you know, sort of, um, more advanced classes that I took were more sort of literature. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I was really into writing and, you know, sort of emo, oh, that's po- emo poetry and all that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I really felt like that aspect of my high school education was what really prepared me for science more yeah. than anything else in high school, mm-hmm. because, um, because there wasn't really also like in, you know, in the college science curriculum, you start to get to the point where you have to do a lot of writing, yeah. but no one's like, no one's teaching how to do good writing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, they're just sort of criticizing it for being bad. If it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you learn, like, get thrown in the fire and you learn by osmosis, I guess. Right. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> you know, I mean, in high school, you're doing all these things about like, you know, five paragraph essays and like, here's how you introduce your point and then here's how you support it and summarize it and all that sort of stuff that's really just about writing becomes relevant to science, but at this, this later stage. Yeah. That was the stuff I didn't pay attention to in high school because I Mm -hmm. guess they couldn't articulate the utility. And then it was kind of like toy writing. Like it was very prescribed Mm -hmm. and I found I wasn't allowed to be that creative, at least Mm -hmm. in high school. Mm-hmm. And so it put me off, but 
I have I had to learn a lot over again when I got to grad school even at that point. Like I yeah. could I could put together, you know, like the basic science report. I could write write like a lab report, that kind of thing. But it, it's very structured and it's kind of prescribed. You have to get a certain amount of information in and that kind of fills the page. Yeah. But once you hit grad school, it's there's different types of writing too. Like you gotta write scholarships and you have to start tell a little bit of a story. And then once you hit a manuscript, like a paper, it it's really a large undertaking. And if you don't synthesize it right and tell the right story, it's not compelling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I was, and you know, my high school had a um, uh, a really strong sort of um, you know like literature department. Um, oh, that's great. Uh, and it was really the um, you know one of the things that I love because I'm also a, I'm, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Um, okay, which you know is too much of an aside, but. Um, the, the curriculum uh, at our high school really focused across many years on sort of like, you know, Joseph Campbell and the, um, the, the hero journey um, mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of uh, thinking about things archetypally. And yeah. that sort of, you know, that, I mean, that plays into science because it's a little bit different structure, but you still have that same structure in a scientific story where you're sort of called to adventure by some question that you don't know the answer to. <laughs> That's a good way to put and, it. Yeah. yeah. And then you go out, you do these experiments, right? And then you get this result, but then yeah. the result doesn't stand on its own. You sort of have to come back to that world and say, well, here's how that fits in to this broader literature that I was summarizing at the beginning. Um, and uh, hopefully it does have some, yeah. some impact or um, interaction with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you talked, it sounds like, you really looking back could take something from your high school experience. Um, we go back to like, where did you grow up? Like, how did this all get started? You know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Southern California, um, in, mm-hmm. in Irvine. Um, uh, I went to, a, um, a Catholic school, um, uh, Santa Margarita Catholic high school, um, in, yeah. in Orange County. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, it was, um, uh, you know, it was the 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 head of the um, the English department there um, was a, a woman named Molly Merrill, and she she was just fantastic. And I had a number of good um, good teachers, but one of the things that was that was sort of I think unique about the school was that it wasn't. I think the year I graduated was like the tenth anniversary of the school opening. Oh wow! And so, um, so she had started that been like the first department head. She had started it like not too mm-hmm. long ago, mm-hmm. and you know, I think that that sort of there's certain things that you sort of have to do in a you know high school curriculum of of any type. Yeah. Um, but you know, and then some things sort of historically get sort of baked in, mm-hmm. and so since she had had to set up the department and its curriculum so recently it still had this cohesiveness of, you know, like I said, the sort of like mythology archetypes, (laughs) hero's journey sort of stretched throughout. It was like a running theme throughout the, um, you know, throughout the whole, the whole curriculum and not just the main courses, but the sort of more elective type courses. Yeah. Um, and so that was, um, that was really, really fantastic. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I started doing um, at that time was uh, playing guitar, which mm-hmm. um, which I still do today. And um, I had um, uh, I took lessons sort of starting in my freshman year of high school. Okay. And um, uh, I had a really great um, uh, guitar teacher. Um, uh, he was just 
when I met him, he was just the teacher at like the local uh, music shop, but uh, a guy named uh, Carl Arano. Okay. And, um, you know, he, but he had been, um, uh, he had been a student at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Wow. Yeah. And um, he really, you know, his sort of curriculum that he followed for students um, to the extent that he could, right? I mean, that's one thing. Most most kids learning to play guitar <laughs> want to learn how to play like these three Metallica songs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you know, like, but, you know, but, but I was really excited to learn about different types of music and music Mm -hmm. theory. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, um, you know, he sort of took me through that curriculum and it was, you know, I think that was another case where it was sort of eye opening about how, um, a good curriculum and having things in context really, um, really helps you to make progress quickly. Um, Yeah. He, um, uh, so I, you know, I, it it was something that I took, took sort of with me to going forward into science. Um, and, you know, probably talk about this a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. sort of within biology, I've moved around a a lot in terms of the different things that, that I've studied. And, um, I always sort of think back to, um, to those sort of, um, uh, early lessons, um, uh, with him because, Coming into coming into high school, I had a couple of friends who were musicians, mm-hmm. and they were like already really good. Like, um, like yeah. my, my friend Josh was like a like a child prodigy on the piano, <laughs> and, um, uh, and my friend Jason was like a really good drummer. Um, yeah, uh, you know, like already, um, or at least I thought. I mean, actually, by the time we graduated, he was like a fantastic drummer. At that time, yeah. he was he he was still learning, but yeah. I thought he was just like a fantastic <laughs> drummer. Yeah, but. Um, but, you know, sort of like like being around them and, you know, hanging around them and they were like, hey, you know, like, you know, like, like you should you should play, learn to play an instrument, too, so that we can like play in a band. And mm-hmm. I, I sort of felt overwhelmed. I was like, I'm so far behind. Like, yeah. these these guys are like, you know, they're already they're already experts, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, you know, but uh, nonetheless, um, uh, you know, my my parents really encouraged me to um, to sort of, you know pick up the guitar and take lessons, um, which I think, you know, for the guitar is a little unusual, um, you know, for parents to encourage it, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, but they encouraged it. And, um, you know, and I took these great lessons, you know, from this really good teacher and, you know, it was sort of, you know, by the, you know, e- even by like junior year, I was a pretty good guitarist and it's sort mm-hmm. of, you know, like by senior year, it was sort of seemed ridiculous that I would have been worried then about like, <laughs> you know, um, whether I had started freshman year or if I had started in middle school or in elementary school, you know, there's mm-hmm. no, like, it doesn't, once, once you sort of learn how to do something that doesn't matter, those sort of, those early huge discrepancies sort of disappear. Um, right. and, and that's something that I tried to, tried to take with me into science in terms mm-hmm. of moving into new areas and trying to learn new fields or new skill sets. Yeah, I love the way you put that and that that mindset of uh, learning how to learn, first of all, mm-hmm. but understanding that if you have context and a direction, you can make the learning more efficient in some ways. Um, yeah. And, and I love that you're likening sort of the arts and the creative process to, to science because I feel like general public doesn't equate the two. I think it 
it's sort of people say it's like left brain, right brain. You know, the types of people that do these things are only good at, at one or the other. Um, but I personally believe that they feed each other and that, you know, just like you said, that creativity is important. It's almost the interplay between brain hemispheres that really can create that spark where you can do something truly novel um, and game changing, really. Um, yeah. And I mean, and it, it, it like, it's, it, it's also striking me though, how, like how sort of sequential it is though. Right. Because mm. the, like that sort of, you know, left brain, right brain stuff, like when you're first starting to get into science and starting to learn about it, like that does apply. And, mm. you know, my, you know, in college, you know, I have, I have to admit my, my intro bio class grades, um, weren't that great. Um, Same. it's, it's a, you know, <laughs> It's a it's a ton of um uh it's a ton of memorization. Yeah, I and, didn't like that. Um, yeah. And um it's sort of um uh the um sorry I'm stuttering at this, but the early stage, you know, the, there's there's not really that opportunity yeah. to be creative until you've sort of learned that language and acquired that context. Yeah, yeah. It's a very much you got to learn the basics and it's a lot of history like you were saying, but that's what allows you to stand on the shoulder of giants when you really continue on. But you got to build on this immensely beautiful work in, in many cases, right? Yeah. My main issue was I didn't get the context, why I was learning it, why it was important. And it wasn't framed in a way that I could understand that scientists that made this discovery what was going on in their life in the world that even allowed that type of thinking to be possible. Right. Um, Cause I think that really frames it as, you know, a story and something that we can latch onto as people, we can kind of internalize when it's a story about someone and we can put that whole sort of picture in our mind. It, it, it allows more connections so that you can pull on it better, um, you know, from memory. And, yeah. you know, I think that, it's it's a shame in many ways that they're kind of forced to do that um, in university just because there's so many people and mm -hmm. it's difficult to to evaluate you know a thousand kids all trying to learn the same thing and you have to screen them through as well to some degree but you know for those that really just want to learn and that you know don't love the memorization. I think it can turn a lot of people off. Um, yeah. And although yeah. I do think that's sort of a necessary hazing, right. And, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, the, the, um, you know, I mean, it would be nice if you didn't have to do that, but, you know, I'm just thinking as a, my, as an undergrad, I, um, I was at Northwestern and, mm -hmm. um, you know, worked in a great lab that was really, really welcoming to undergrads and really, um, you know, was tough on us, but, um, sort of encouraged us to, um, uh, to, you know, to really, really dive into research, um, was, uh, mm -hmm. Rick Morimoto's lab. And, um, you, you know, it was a great environment. Um, uh, but there was this thing of, you know, when I started working in the lab, I'd never really read scientific papers before. Right. And now I'm, you know, being handed these scientific papers, you know, that are relevant to the, the project I'm going to start working on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, you only have a little bit of context for any biology. I think, you know, as an undergrad, when you join a lab, like you're right. not like, oh, oh I yeah. want to study this. What lab studies that? <laughs> and go find it, right? You're like, 
what lab seems like they, you know, it would be a cool place where they'd welcome me and I'd want to do right. research. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, whatever they study, I guess I'm going to study that, you know, yeah. especially, yeah. and it's like, you know, what project I'm going to do. It's like, well, whoever needs help, I'm going to help them with some sub project that's related to their project. Right. Yeah. Not yeah. Making that choice. But I guess, you know, so first getting into that and first starting to read scientific papers, um, at first I just had to read them on sort of a blind faith because, you know, especially, I mean, especially in molecular biology, there are so many acronyms. Yeah. And that's sort of, to me, that was the big language barrier. And I would read these things that I would have no idea what anything was referencing, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that was the sort of the same memorization aspect that I had the most trouble with in sort of the intro classes. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you read more and more and, you know, just like speaking a new language, you start to recognize more and more terms. And then at that point, you can start to think about, you know, the sort of the logic of it, right? You know, the, um, you know, you know, the players, it's, you know, it's like, it's like watching a TV series, right? Like in the first episode, yeah. there's a lot of mystery because you don't know who any of the characters are. And then right. later on, and, you know, that's, you get into things, you know, probably first like Star Wars, like it's, you know, people who aren't big Star Wars fans, like mm -hmm. I don't have this problem, but I have more of this problem <laughs> with like the, like the Marvel um, cinematic universe where it's like, I haven't seen all the movies, yeah. so I don't really know all the relationships between all the mm -hmm. characters. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can get a little bored with it and just like, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah. But if you're into it, if you've seen all the movies, then there's a lot more to draw on. You're like, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing what just happened. Um, yeah. But yeah, you really you really can't get that out of it until you know all the characters and all the players and you understand their relationships. And that just, you know, like like you like you said, you're standing on, you know, the shoulders of giants and centuries worth of giants. Yeah. And until you build all that up, it's like, you know, jumping into a soap opera in the middle of, <laughs> of it. You know, you're just not gonna know what's going on. Right. Um and it might even seem kind of silly, right? But it's not silly. It's it's uh it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I and I love the way you're sort of speaking about it because you're speaking in artistic terms um, about science, about the scientific process. Um, I just want to, you know, talk about sort of that hero story from high school. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, it's nice that at that. Um, department chair could have a sort of a unifying vision that she wanted to pursue and, and felt that it was important. But I, th I think this sort of hero mythology applies everywhere. And it's something really central to how humans conceptualize the world and their place in it. Um, and for me, I don't have a problem with it. I'm unashamedly cheering for the hero <laughs> always um you know i i try and see myself that way and you know that i have to worry about the the cockiness aspect and that kind of thing so make sure i have friends that don't let me get too arrogant things like mm -hmm. that but i think this story of the hero is useful for everyone because that's the point right it's achieve or strive for some sort of ideal to be the best of yourself to do something extraordinary um and i think that's worth pursuing it's it's an inspiring story um, do you see any scientists in history that you look of that way? Do you think that applies to scientists and how they pursue, um, their endeavors? Well, I mean, so the, the hero's journey, this sort of 
cyclic pattern. And um, for anyone who hasn't heard of this before, sorry, I should probably should have said this earlier yeah. on, but um, uh, <clears throat> this guy, Joseph Campbell, um, he studied world mythology and he mm -hmm. sort of, you know, as he read more and more myths, he sort of noticed um, that there was a certain pattern of events right. that was in common to, to all of these stories mm -hmm. um, with people sort of, um, uh, you know, they're living their lives and then they're sort of called to adventure. Yeah. Then they enter another world and then <laughs> they're sort of helped out by this person or, or that person, whatever. And then they sort of reach some sort of um, realization and then they have to return to their original world, mm -hmm. but as sort of like a changed person. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's sort it's, it's, it's a pattern that once, once you sort of know what the pattern is, once you've you know read that, then you, you know, you sort of, you, you know, you read almost anything that people like and yeah. you can see that pattern. See it. Yeah. It's and, everywhere. You know, and that's one of the th great things about, you know, the, um, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, Star Wars in the seventies when it came out <laughs> so was like, perfect. it was like, yeah, it was like really cool, <laughs> you know, like cool special effects, but yeah. you know, they it's not the only, that. yeah, it's not the only like cool space movie. And there are a lot of like silly things about it you know um, for sure oh yeah <laughs> but at the same time it's like i think part of the reason people love it is because um like george lucas had sort of read this theory of of myth building and it's it's like very literal like each step is like in there in a very literal way mm -hmm. and so um you know it's sort of it, it's it really plays into this and i guess you know the idea is that that it reflects sort of how we all grow like how we all sort of grow through life and all of the challenges that we have, but also sort of describes the, um, the way that we think about our own successes. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's, it's sort of just like a description of what we do psychologically as, right. as we live. And, um, you know, so the having that, you know, so certainly having that framework and sort of already knowing that, okay, there, there are these certain steps if you want to write something that's going to resonate with people, it makes it easier to just already have that as a template. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a, um, a good way of thinking about the, the scientific method. Um, yeah. and when you learn about it, it's sort of, it's very abstract, right. And you're sort of, you know, when you do like the, you know, middle school, high school, like science fair project, it's like, you know, you have to say, this is background research hypothesis, <laughs> test you know yeah. data analysis conclusion right yeah but those really are sort of the um sort of the the you know the steps like that's sort of it's the, the science version of the hero's journey and yeah. and a lot of times you know that you know i think you know, scientists like us or people we know will sort of say you know that's not really how it works in in real life you know mm -hmm. it's like you know, you, you like you do this experiment, but then you mess it up and then you got to go do something differently. And then you sort of mm -hmm. notice something strange and sort of in retrospect, you're like, oh, I guess that's what I was really testing. And, you know, you um, you know, the the way that you write up the story isn't always the way it happened in the lab. Yeah. yeah. But at some level it is right. At some mm -hmm. level, you sort of you had some set of things that you knew. Yeah. You had a, a, a thought, a hypothesis that you wanted to test or a question that you wanted to gather more data on. Mm -hmm. So you set up an experiment and even, even though it's messy, I mean, life is always messy. <laughs> and, you know, right. the hero journey, sometimes it's only in retrospect that you sort of see 
oh, th- these are how I went through these steps as yeah, I went it's not linear. Yeah, as, as, as I went through, well, but in, the, in retrospect, if you go back and you say, oh, you know, as I think about this, this process that I went through, like, it's a lot harder to say I'm at this point in the process than it is to say a year later, oh, at that point, I was at this point in, in the process. Right. And I think the same, the same with science, where really that, that the scientific method is, um, you know, it's not just a, um, a, a I mean, one way to think about it, and I think this is a good way to think about it, is as um, an effective technique for gaining new knowledge that is going to actually be legitimate and useful. Yeah. Um, but the other way to think about it is just as a description of the process that anyone who's investigating the, uh, you know, the universe is going to go through Mm -hmm. and sort of knowing those steps allows you to sort of execute that more effectively, you know, just like George Lucas writing star Wars, just following the steps of Joseph Campbell is a lot easier than just trying to come up with a story and refine it over the years so that it resonates with people until you get to the point that you sort of arrive there by accident. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some some sort of core messaging that people have always responded to in that hero mythology. Yeah. And I agree, Star Wars just nailed all of the archetypes. It was so beautiful, right down to the Force, which mm-hmm. is sort of like this magical, you know, existential sort of power that certain people have a certain acuity for or you know, they, they can shape things how they want. And I think that's a great analogy for life. There's yeah certain people that just have certain insight into what it is to be a human or what motivates people or, you know, what, what is that unifying vision that's required for people to move towards a common goal. And it's those people that can rally a movement behind them. And that's probably exactly what George Lucas was doing when he was setting up the film even yeah. setting up the the cast and crew it, it's a huge undertaking that was years long in the making and it's it was such a complex fictional world um it required a lot of moving parts um to put together and so it required some sort of unifying vision and some passion for people to um to use to to strive toward that amazing product in the end and you can kind of feel that magic that people put together, right? Uh, when when people really care and are passionate about what they're working on, that pursuit of their ideal is is recognized, even if it's through multiple layers of you know screens or or, or whatnot, or even fictional layers of story. It can still resonate. Yeah. No, and I, and I, I mean, I think the other thing is like the power of that sort of the underlying narrative. Yeah. And, you know, and sort of the, you know, the, the fact that he has that narrative in there, the same with the scientific method, right? Like the, like the, the, the great leaps in science, you can sort of, whether, no matter how intentional or unintentional it was at the time, mm-hmm. you can see the steps of the scientific method. Um, and I think, you know, the same thing and it's, you know, it's like different, different people have like, there's some really silly things in Star Wars, right? Like, some yep. people don't like the Ewoks. Some people don't like um, Metachlorians. Some people don't like, um, uh, you know, Jar Jar Binks. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, like, you know, even going through that sort of prequel era where people were, I think, you know, at the highest extent, like, what? Like, <laughs> like 
we all sort of loved it still. Like it didn't stop us from loving Star Wars. And I right. think that that's, you know, if that deep story is there, that substance is there, you know, um, you can like the minutiae. There's still like lots of cool mm-hmm. special effects. You can not like it. You can be like, like why are mitochondria now, um, you know, controlling the force like that's stupid. Yeah. But, you know, but regardless of, of, of that sort of surface stuff, you've got like that deep, um, you know, that sort of like the, the Chomsky universal grammar, you know, that's sort of deeper than the surface structure that um, sort of keeps you, you know, grabs hold of you. Yeah, I I think I've I've heard Jordan Peterson speak, I think, the most about this sort of idea of like sort of a meta structure being more real than our reality because it informs all of our decision making mm-hmm. and our goal oriented behavior. And it mm-hmm. it's you you can deny it all you want, but you end up acting it out anyway. Yeah. Um yeah. This so, is getting deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's that's why I hope to get from a podcast and a longer conversation, right? It's, yeah. um, you know, I don't want to just talk about science with scientists. You know, there's some really amazing people that I work with here, um, that didn't make their decision to get here or didn't take it lightly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's informed on broader perspective and knowledge. And I want to get at that. I think that's really important that the general public doesn't just think of science as some sort of sterile, you know, very regimented thing. It's there's people that are contributing to our collective knowledge and you have to do that as a human. Like you're not a robot. Um, Mm -hmm. and so you bring in your own stories and motivations as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, to that point, like I definitely experienced scientists that don't want to think of anything broader than what they're working on. And Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really jive with those people. I've, I felt like they didn't have a context that could inform their decision making, and it, you know, the details or their actions tended to be cyclical and or not moving in a productive direction, in my opinion. Right. Um, did you do you ever find pushback? Or I don't know if you talk about this with colleagues and things like that, but you ever find pushback on sort of talking about the scientific method or how you go about things in more sort of creative, poetic, artistic ways or um, cre- creating assimilations? I'm not, I'm not always this like uh, poetry focused when I'm, you know, actually, <laughs> actually doing the science. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it's, you know, I, I do think that a lot of, you know, a lot of the work you're sort of, these are like the, you know, the sort of the, the ideas that are up there, but you're not necessarily explicitly of course describing them uh, at the time. Yeah. But there is, you know, I mean, there is a, um, this phenomenon that you brought up of sort of people sort of sort of sticking in their fields and um, uh, you know, sort of not, not necessarily having a broader context. And um, that, that is something that is, you know, I think a, a challenge within science and, you know, on a more practical level, you know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with sort of, you know, the way funding is done and sort of the reflections that that has on, has on culture. Yeah. But um, I mean, one thing, so, I mean, in a lot of ways, my my career has been like pretty much like just the straight and narrow path, right? Like I went from high school straight to college, mm-hmm. majored in biology, went straight to grad school, PhD in biology, went straight to my postdoc, and then went straight to my job at, at Calico. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. one of these people who has like a, 
a fascinating story where I like went out and toured the world or, <laughs> you know, um, uh, was like a, like a, a medic in some remote, um, you know, mm-hmm. war torn area era or something, something like that. Um, yep. it was just, you know, really, really sort of, you know, following the steps. Um, mm-hmm. I think one thing that I did more than what I see in a lot of my colleagues though, is changing fields and, um, sort of yeah. getting into new areas of science, which, yeah. um, which has been really gratifying for me and has ma- had made me, um, enjoy my career. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not sure it's, you know, the, the smartest plan though. Um, and I guess, you know, thinking about, you know, and this is, this is something that I sort of thought about, um, uh, looking at the, the labs that I was in and sort of, as I started to understand a little bit more of how, um, how science is funded, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, sort of, you know, um, like grants really go to experts in their field right. and people who are changing fields when they first change mm-hmm. are sort of by definition, not experts yeah. in that new field. Um, and my, um, you know, and I saw this with, um, you know, and, and just like I was saying with like guitar where, you know, like three, four years after I'd started learning it, it's like, it really didn't matter that I started freshman year of high school versus if I'd started when I was, was right. five, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, my, my PhD advisor, so I went to MIT for grad school. My, my PhD advisor was Dave Bartell mm-hmm. and he's, you know, like a very, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I just could, could you maybe just uh, touch on the decision-making that took you from sort of North Northwestern studying biology and, and how you made that decision to go to MIT. What were the factors you were considering? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, absolutely. And that's sort of, I think that's going to feed into this, this other story mm-hmm. about changing fields too, mm-hmm. because, um, uh, you know, like, you know, so like I said, so I was working in this lab that worked on, um, uh, cellular stress responses. And that's a fascinating field. And it's like, you know, it's something that sort of comes back in in aging biology. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like I was saying, like when you pick um, or, you know, get picked to join a lab in uh, as an undergrad, it's not like you're thinking about, oh, here are all the different areas of like, you don't even know what many things are in biology, right? right? You're just going with the opportunity. So um, uh, as, um, you know, my my undergrad advisor started, um, encouraging me to, um, uh, you know, to apply to grad school. Um, and it's like, you know, you're getting ready to write applications mm-hmm. and, you know, you really have to say something about what you want to do and who the people in this department you want to go to that you want to work with, like who they are. Mm-hmm. And so, um, at that point I sort of, um, you know, I had this, you know, this sort of, this, this thing that I was thinking about, which was like a very, sort of abstract um uh abstract uh concept that um uh you know it was just something that I was curious about on on some level and you know that was sort of um uh just sort of how sort of evolution works at the molecular level yeah and so yeah. you know and and it was it was sort of just thinking about like well okay like because most of what I'd learned about that you know, up until that point was about sort of genes duplicating mm-hmm. and that, you know, you sort of the way that you get sort of new genes in the genome as species evolve is that like some old gene duplicates 
and then they can go do something different or you know whatever yeah um, since it's just an extra copy but you end up with something that's similar but but you know but that sort of really made me curious about you know sort of closer to the origins of life like yeah. how how different molecules evolved and did sort of each type of molecule or domain that's out there sort of have to spring up on its own or do mm-hmm. they is it easy for them to to you know to sort of um to 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 change um yeah you know like we always think about them sort of maintaining their basic structure and changing their function somehow um by you know changing certain properties of like what they're going to interact with their binding pockets or whatever but you know those big leaps how how do those happen and are they yeah. really so different from the the small leaps and mm-hmm. um you know as i um you know as i started reading about that i was i was really i was really excited to yeah. see that like there actually are people um who who study that sort of thing mm-hmm. and um you know i hadn't done a ton about it uh, of reading about it at that time but um the one of the most what i you know what i thought at the time but but i still think one of the most interesting cases that i came across of people studying this was um uh was dave bartell who ended up being my 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 phd advisor Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, there was a, a postdoc in his lab, uh, Eric Schulte, who had done a paper, um, studying. So first of all, Dave came from a background of doing, um, uh, sort of RNA enzymology. Okay. And so, um, a lot of biologists don't even appreciate that RNA, in addition to being sort of a, a messenger and sort of playing a structural role, like it does in, in the ribosome, mm-hmm. uh, does, um, can be a catalyst, and there aren't a ton of enzymes where RNA is actually the component of the enzyme that's doing the catalysis, but there are a few okay. um, that are sort of around in modern biology. Um, Could you I'll, give an example? Would anyone? Would I know of one? Uh, uh, you you definitely know of one. Um, well, yeah. I'll start out by saying a, a lot of them are um, uh, play roles in um, uh, in virus replication. So okay. if you have an RNA virus that does like a rolling circle replication, yeah. then each new copy of the virus has to get cut somehow. Yeah. And in a lot of viruses, that's done by a um, by an RNA that can sort of fold up and self-cleave. Interesting. Okay. Um, the you know, and this was this was uh, a contentious point for a long time, but now it's resolved. The one that you definitely know the most about is the ribosome. Yeah, where it is actually the RNA that's doing the that's doing the catalysis, and yeah. even though it's a big structure of RNA and proteins, and you know, and like I said, like like that's that, that's well established now, but was very contentious for um, for many years, mm-hmm. um, uh, for many decades even. Um, <laughs> so uh, so, and we might come back to that. That that makes sense, but the the sort of the uh, there's also a lot more, and this is what my PhD had worked on and advisor had worked on during his PhD was um, uh, you can um, use um, in vitro selection methods to evolve new RNA enzymes out of random sequence. And so that was his PhD project had been evolving an RNA ligase out of random sequence. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of really getting it like origins of life idea. So there's this idea that since RNA can be like DNA, right? In a lot of viruses, it is the genome, mm-hmm. um, coronavirus, right? Right. Um, 
perfect but example. it also you know it also um it also can be an enzyme and can perform functions so the ri- the ribosome is an rna enzyme mm-hmm. um there aren't very many other sort of rna enzymes in um in biology um mm-hmm. there's um there's one in particular that's sort of also like a you know a core essential function which is um rnase p um mm-hmm. which is it you know cleaves um uh the sort of, it's like the five prime tail off of a tRNA um, from its primary transcript. Um, And there it's like a cleavage, that cleavage of the RNA is being done by RNA. Interesting. Just like the, but just like, it's not an RNA just floating around on its own. The, um, uh, the, the, it's also in, in complex with proteins. And so it took some work to figure out that it was a, um, uh, um, that it was RNA doing the catalysis. Okay. There's also a set of um, introns um, that are called self-splicing introns because it's the RNA that does the, um, they splice themselves out of RNA. So they do all the catalysis. Um, and then the spliceosome itself, um, again, this is a case where it was a little harder to figure out that it, you know, established that it really was the RNA doing the catalysis. Mm-hmm. But um, that's, that's another case. Um, so you have all of these, these sort of, um, very like core function, sort of fundamental, like the most fundamental aspect of biology of like making proteins, Mm -hmm. right. Where RNA is doing several of the catalysis steps and is doing the most essential of those for translation, the actual forming of, of peptide bonds is being done by RNA. Yeah. And so since RNA can do sort of both of these things, there's this idea that before life evolved sort of a different genome that's a little more stable than RNA to sort of store the information mm-hmm. and then evolved um, uh, a, you know, a different polymer system for molecular machines and for, you know, catalysis of, you know, p- proteins, yep. that it was just RNA, that RNA was the, um, uh, was the, you know, whole the whole game and um and that's called the rna world hypothesis okay yeah and so um the what what my phd advisor had done for his phd is selected out of random sequences just random rnas come up with a selection scheme to select an rna that would perform a ligation onto the end of itself Okay. Wow. And the the idea there is that sort of a ligation of two RNA polymers, that formation of that phosphodiester bond, mm-hmm. that's like the basic unit of transcription. Is that that's what you're doing each time? You're taking a nucleotide and a string of nucleotides, and you're right. just joining them together. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of the the sort of I guess philosophical motivation, I guess, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, this postdoc um, in his lab had done this experiment that was even more like along the types of things that I was curious about um, that was called, it was called the neutral path project. Okay. And um, what he did was he took a, one of these naturally occurring ribozymes that cleaves itself mm-hmm. from, from a virus and of another ribozyme that had been um, evolved in vitro. Um, okay. from, from random sequence and um, that performed a ligation reaction. And what he did 
like they were totally unrelated, right? I mean, one was mm-hmm. sort of made up, right? Um, but what he did was he introduced mutations either one or two at a time. So just a very slow, continuous walk-through sequence. Okay. But each time it made the sequences of the two RNA enzymes more and more similar. I see. And eventually they are the same sequence. And that sequence can perform both of the functions, not quite as well as either of the as either of the parents, but it's like the there's only a very small it can still do both activities. And there's like a very only a very small little little glut in between. It's only like okay. four or five you know, polymorphisms that you need to do to go, you know, whole hog on one activity to whole hog on the other activity. Wow. And the secondary structures are completely different and, and everything. And so that was really, um, that was really cool. And that really inspired yeah. me. Um, and that really, um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, aside from all the other sort of uh, phenomenal aspects of MIT that made me excited about going there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, that that made me excited about um, uh, about going there. Um, yeah, that that's really beautiful. It's directed evolution, right? Yeah, yeah. And it it's getting at a core property of life, then, right? Yeah. Like pre, would that be pre biological? What do we call biological life? Yeah. Well, I mean, so this is something that sort of it's useful for me to think about in sort of the, um, the aging field as well. But uh-huh. when you get into that field of like the RNA world and sort of origins of life, um, yeah. uh, and there, you know, there are a, a decent number of groups who study that sort of thing, that sort of idea of, um, you know, what is life and how, how can <laughs> it be defined? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think like, in the past, sort of even in high school, you get like a definition for what is life, but it's not really a definition, right? It's like mm-hmm. composed of cells, right. can self-replicate, does, yeah, yeah. It's like here are all the properties that, you know, most life has. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's fine, you know, and pretty much like mm-hmm. if you're a biologist, you're not generally that confused about whether the thing you're studying <laughs> is a, a living thing or a non-living thing. Right. But, um, you know, but you, but, but when you get into origins of life, then it's a little bit more contentious Yeah. and sort of, you know, if you have an enzyme that can replicate itself, but you have to give it all these things and sort of make conditions just right, you know, does that really count? Um, right. uh, so, it, you know, and just, you know, skipping ahead, like I think in the aging field, it's, there's a similar issue of like, when you talk like, what is aging? What are the problems right. of aging? You yeah. can you can list examples <laughs> of it, and um, but you know it's it's a little bit harder to define, you know, and sort of deeper questions like is anything that changes as a function of time, is that really what we're talking about as aging mm-hmm. or not? Um, it's sort of you know it's not really for most people it's like working in most fields you don't need to have that sort of nuance uh, right. about about whether it is aging or isn't aging but you start mm-hmm. to work in that field and the sort of um well i know it when i see it kind of explanation that works 99 percent of the time is no longer um can you know can be a, a guide all yeah. of the time yeah so so anyway origins of life though so that's what my um i guess this was all being motivated by this question about um sort of changing fields and yeah. and sort of you know what what 
drew me into, into grad school. But, um, that, so that was one of the things that I saw, um, with my, um, with my PhD advisor, because, um, you know, he's, he's an extremely successful scientist and he's very mm-hmm. well known. Um, I think at this point though, most people would, you know, who, who have heard of him sort of casually, um, wouldn't even think of him as studying RNA enzymes. They'd think of him as studying micro RNAs. Okay. And so I was, um, I joined his lab sh- pretty shortly after the lab had moved into studying micro RNAs. And um, he sort of, you know, from the beginning of that field, he was one of the really prominent people in the field. But yeah, because that's pretty new, right? Yeah. So this was the, um, the, I mean, the first discoveries were um, uh, were in the '90s, but at that time, it was really, it was really just you know, a, an example from C. elegans. And then there was mm-hmm. sort of later in the '90s, there was like a second example also in C. elegans of a gene that worked that way. And then it was um, 2001 when um, a series of papers came out, sort of saying this, these are, this is not just like two genes and C. elegans. This is a whole set of genes that, um, that operate this way and function this way. Right. And, um, uh, and so the, then that sort of exploded as a field and it was as it was, it's connected with the phenomenon of RNAi, and that's was also sort of being discovered and appreciated, um, right around then. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, so, so he became a really prominent person in that field, but, you know, even for him, the the sort of the fact that it was a change in fields was, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I could see as being um, uh, a difficulty in in the lab and in the short term in terms of funding, because all the grants were to work on RNA enzymes. Yeah. And now it's like, OK, you have to go through another round of writing grants. And, um, you know, I mean, ultimately he was he was successful with that. But there was a lot of uncertainty because it's like, well, you know, there's and, and I think it helped that the field was a relatively new field where there weren't other competing experts. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was even more stressful when it started to be like, OK, what are these genes doing? We're going to study their function. And a lot of that has to do with like developmental biology. And that's there really are established people there. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, to um to sort of pivot from an RNA biochemistry lab to a um, sort of you know, developmental biology lab, at least in part, is um, is is a big shift. And you know, I think you know he's a sort of prominent enough scientist where um, you know he was able to to navigate that. Yeah. But um, for sort of you know um, your average everyday scientists, you know, um, you can sort of appreciate like yeah, you know if if you're not already at that sort of level of prominence, um, there's a lot less freedom to do that. And, you know, if you're not, if, 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 if it's, if you're more anonymous to the sort of committee reviewing your grant, yeah, they might be a little bit less trusting of funding you going into, um, sort of a new area. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, that's sort of, you know, what I, you know, what I think about, you know, or what, one of the things that I, you know, sort of got this impression that the funding really does create this, this culture of people sort of studying the same thing for long amounts of time. And there's some great counterexamples, but I think that's still like the, you know, the 
sort of the, the overall theme. Yeah. Yeah. Do you and think it, that's problematic? Um, I do. I think I think it um it's you know, there I mean there are advantages to it, and certainly mm. some people should should do that, but you know, I think it does it makes it harder to follow the science. So, yeah. you know, if you're if you're studying you know, and a lot of people, you know, if they're if they're thinking of themselves as like a cancer biologist, right? And there's some there's some gene, some protein that they think it might be really important to cancer biology, mm-hmm. right? Then they can go study that and they dig in. Yeah. If the product of like, you know, a decade's worth of work is that this thing isn't actually relevant to um cancer biology. Yeah. Then it's like, well, what is it relevant? And, you know, I'm still going to study it because this is the sort of the pathway or the protein complex that I study where yeah. I'm the expert. Right. And you I'm become not gonna, an expert. Yeah. And I'm not going to, you know, be able to move, even though you sort of, you're already thinking of yourself as a, as a cancer biologist, you haven't been sort of studying that, that broad field, right? You're, you have a, a more narrow set of expertise and you sort of say, okay, well, this is even if this turns out not to be as important for this phenomenon of cancer biology, like this is still the thing that I'm going to study. And since all of my attempts to connect that with like higher level physiology have been the cancer biology, still probably going to be studying how it relates to cancer biology, even if it's not that important. I don't know. That's just, I mean, that's just my opinion, but that sort of seems like where a lot of people can get, can get sort of stuck in ruts yeah um, and you know and it, it's sort of a gamble right so you you if if you are the expert in something that you know sort of the at the higher level of the world then becomes really interested in then then you're golden right right you're the expert in that and that's really useful to have people who sort of mm-hmm. have that in-depth knowledge of something so yeah. that you know when it sort of becomes important to some problem that's the person to go to um but you know most people you know, and uh, I think that's you know the, one of the other things I, I you know I realized sort of seeing um, you know bigger labs um, uh, as I went through my career and seeing that you know there's like they're they're writing you know nature cell science papers all the time um, you know on a regular basis these labs are great but you know they're also they're big labs and sort of you know a lot of the people in in these labs are working on projects that are risky. Um, and that are just not going to pan out. Yeah. And they're going to have trouble in their careers um, yeah. because of that. But the lab is going to be fine because mm-hmm. for every three people whose careers go nowhere because their projects barely even produced a paper, you're mm-hmm. going to have one that was a nature cell science paper and you have a big enough lab where, you know, so that's, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate part of the game, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, Un- uncertain career path to take it's very trepidatious and uh, uh there's not many fields like it anymore i think it's where um sort of the employee has to assume so much risk mm-hmm. um and the employer is is kind of insulated because in, in the industry it tends to be like the company will take risk and it'll take calculated risk and sort of the employees are along for the ride but it isn't as much one, I think, taking advantage of the other in, in some respects. So I don't know how sustainable that is long-term because these are very educated, capable people that 
could contribute, I think, in in society in many ways. But they're making this bet that is it's starting to seem less and less worth it in the end. Yeah, well, and I, but I think you know, it, uh, all you know, all these people do end up making making contributions in 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 one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know the thinking about then trying to like practically get a job, you know, um, there is an advantage then, um, I think, you know, looking at industry jobs to having some diversity, um, in your, in terms of what you've worked on, because, um, you know, industry, I think, um, uh, you know, does sort of hire according to a need in a particular area. And so if you only have one particular area, you have to like, wait around for someone to see like a need in that. So the more diversified you are, um, the more likely you'll see an opportunity that you can match up with. The downside though, is that then if you have like a bunch of, you know, sort of diversity of experience, um, then in that one area where you saw an ad where you sort of match up with uh, what they want, you know, there's going to be other people out there who don't have that same kind of diversity but who are more of experts in that area or just published more in that area. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, I guess there, there's probably some game theory to that. I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure which is, yeah, uh, I don't. which is better. Um, I mean, one thing is, so I, I had not worked on, um, on aging before I came to Calico. Um, so I've, you know, in, in grad school, I sort of, um, uh, you know, I, I, I went to, um, to Dave's lab, interested in studying and I studied for a while RNA enzymes. Um, eventually mm-hmm. I also switched and I don't have any papers on RNA enzymes. I have <laughs> papers on, on micro RNAs. Um, okay. Uh, but then for, um, for my postdoc, I went to UCSF and worked for, um, Joe DeRisi, um, mm-hmm. studying infectious disease and trying to use deep sequencing technologies to discover new viruses. And so, so that was, that was sort of another, field right so different from what i'd done as an undergrad or as a grad student um or as either of the things that i'd done as a as a grad student um so um uh so that was a little you know that was a little different um the you know the uh so yeah it's how how did you make that choice because again there's there's some considerations there right um when you finish up a phd you know, you could apply to industry in some cases, right? Um, or you could be thinking academia, postdoc is the typical path. So what kind of factors were you weighing there? Yeah, so I mean, I was really thinking about postdoc and I sort of, you know, I have to admit, you know, since I joined my PhD lab, sort of wanting to work in one field and ended up working in a different field, um, yeah. you know, that was a little bit of, you know, sort of opportunity and necessity. Um, with just sort of the way projects were going and the sort of mm. opportunities for new projects. Um, yeah. And so, um, so I wasn't, I didn't feel like, um, that, um, uh, sort of established or sort of, you know, um, connected to that field. And so I definitely was like, you know, open to and even favoring the idea of sort of, branching out um into a a, a different field Mm -hmm. um sort of but the other thing there was a continuity which was that um uh, you know this is you know one of the really lucky things that happened you know i've had i've had great luck in in a few areas but one (laughs) of the really lucky things was 
being in Dave's lab and um, uh, sort of, you know, looking for new projects and sort of having just started to learn how to do computer programming and bioinformatics at that point gave me the opportunity to work with some of the first um, next generation sequencing data sets that were produced. Wow. Um, because if, you know, if you were following that technology um, at that time, so this is sort of um, mid 2000, sort of 2005, 2006. Yeah. Um, this is coming off the human genome project. So all these new technologies are coming together. Um, right, but they weren't really coming together yet. So they were. Oh, okay. They were they were in pretty bad shape, um, and they you know they had oh, they had super high error rates, and you could barely you know you could only get through a few nucleotides before they would just crap out. Oh, jeez. And so there were people who were thinking theoretically about like, well, this is going to be the next big thing. Uh huh. You know, so how can we use this and starting to build tools for like genomics type stuff or for like you know RNA seq. But that wasn't really really a thing yet. Um, most of these things could only um, you know could only get through like twenty five nucleotides before the sequencing reaction was oh, just wow. over. <laughs> so, but that was fine because microRNAs are twenty two nucleotides. <laughs> okay. So that was sort of there was like this niche area where the technology was good enough to do. You know, I mean, now it doesn't sound like a lot, but you right. know. The you know just to put in perspective through Sanger sequencing, the lab had sequenced um, uh, about I think at the time it was like three thousand microRNA cDNA clones mm-hmm. over many years of work from multiple grad students all combined. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the biggest, and then like one reaction on one of the new um, you know sequencing machines would give you many hundreds of thousands to millions of sequence cDNA clones. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. And so, you know, so getting to analyze that and then you start to need computer programming um, yeah. to, to actually to actually do it. Like that was that was a great thing. And so that was I was really fortunate to um to to be in that situation. Um mm. but like you were saying like the you know the technology this was before the technology was great, but it was it was evolving quickly and it was clear that it was going to be great and people were starting to experiment with chip seek and with rna seek of mm-hmm. mrnas and you know um like and with you know trying to do whole genome sequencing with it and so um you know it was clearly a technology that was going to be able to do things beyond what i had been able to to do with it yeah and that's where um uh, uh that's what sort of got me attracted to um to joe's lab where they had been doing a project for a while um, because you know, J- Joe is, you know, um, uh, you know probably the, the central person in the development of microarray technology. And ah, okay. um, what he had started to do at UCSF was try to imply, apply that to infectious disease research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at one level, there was this idea of, like, if you had a microarray that instead of having, like, you know, mRNAs from some organism as probes where you can look at gene expression. If you just had probes, you know, on there and you could fit, fit it on there against like every type of virus that is known to man, then, um, uh, you know, that could on the one hand be sort of a diagnostic tool Mm -hmm. that is, you know, going to be a lot more efficient than trying to do 
uh, you know, an RT-PCR against one thing at a time. Right, yeah. Um, but what they had also seen is that in in some cases where they had samples where the virus in the sample was unknown, if it was related to any of the viruses that were on that array, then if it was close mm. enough, it would cross-hybridize enough. And so they'd mm. be able to pick out it's this type of virus, and then they could use that information to go in and get the genome of the virus and sort of fully characterize it. And so this was right at the stage where um, his group was starting to use deep sequencing mm -hmm. instead of microarrays um, to, um, to discover new types of viruses. And so that's, that's sort of, you know, so I sort of stayed with that technology, but moved into like a new, um, a new area of science. Um, mm -hmm. So how conscious was that, um, I guess, internalization that this was a technology that was, was here for the long term? Like how many people around you agreed with that sort of perspective? Um, how how sure were you of that? Oh, I I I don't think I I had no special insight in in thinking that. I think everybody um uh, pretty much agreed with it. If anything, mm -hmm. the the hype was starting to be sort of in the other direction. Um, ah. I mean, one of the things the the work with microRNAs and RNAi, I think, really helped that industry and that technology mm -hmm. because you know a lot of the a lot of the other applications were still a ways off and still took a yeah. lot of work to get them even if they could be done to get them to work effectively. Mm -hmm. um, what, um, what, what, the, the, what the microRNA work really did, I think, is um, motivated institutions to buy machines. Yeah. And, you know, because, like, it's sort of, you don't want to buy a machine that's like, well, this is going to be, you know, <laughs> this is going to be great in, like, five years, right? <laughs> I mean, academic institutions, you want, if you're going to spend, you know, a large sum of money on a machine, mm -hmm. you better get a cell science or nature paper out of yeah. that pronto. Yeah. And, you know, in the, and this is why I was, was so lucky in those very early days, because the microRNA field still wasn't that old. So there was still a lot of hype about microRNAs in general. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, almost every, you know, I mean, I, I sort of, I worked with, um, uh, a pretty limited number of data sets. Um, I mean, really four data sets gave me five papers. Oh, um, wow. You know, and, and like, like all in top journals. Um, so it was almost literally like every time you do a, a, an experiment yeah. run on this machine, you get a high profile paper. Yeah. It was just so rich in, novel information yeah and it was a little frustrating that then people expected that people were like you know, <laughs> i did deep sequencing of microRNAs. where's my nature paper kind of right. kind of thing um, yeah but you know it was like yeah no you have to actually there has to be you have to discover something in that set of yeah um, but but it was you know that sort of there was it, it was a lot easier to make an important discovery sort of quickly and you know it just made things that were you know, very difficult to detect before, all of a sudden they're just obvious, right? It didn't even take that much yeah. insight to really figure out what was going on or, or to see them. Mm. And that really, that really meant that a lot of institutions started to buy these machines. And that meant that once they had them, 
they could use them for developing other other aspects of the technology like chip seek or sort of more general case rna seek yeah. um you know yeah. like there started to be more more of that um mm-hmm. and it you know that really having that that sort of set of early publications and that demonstration that like this is not an abstract concept of this is going to be useful like mm-hmm. it's it's an abstract concept that you'll be able to use it for all this other stuff down the line yeah. but right now you can you can get return on your investment for buying these machines um mm-hmm. so that really sped that a lot and so i was you know um uh you know I, I was very fortunate to be sort of right in that early you know uh sort of you know, a, a, an early person in that gold rush, but yeah, um, yeah, but but I was I was not unique in thinking that that's um, in, in in appreciating the 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 breadth of impact for that technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, how long were you at UCSF, and when did you start thinking of uh, your next step? Yeah, so I, I was there for six years, um, and um, uh, I basically had you know six years worth of funding. So um, okay, uh, uh, I finished my job at the at the very end of six years, and then had um, uh, like two weeks break before I started at Calico. Um, oh, jeez, wow! But there yeah. was you know I started I I really started thinking about industry you know I'd say in the you know maybe maybe in my fourth year. Um, and yeah. you know, part of it was, you know, and this is sort of, I think this like sort of changing fields. Um, and you know, this was also sort of even within the lab, um, uh, my postdoc lab, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't publish as quickly as one would maybe want if you're gonna, you know, be pursuing, uh, academic jobs. Um, and I sort of, I had a backlog of like really high impact papers that are definitely helpful for getting those types of jobs, but they were all in like a different field than what I was currently working on. And Mm. so, you know, that I, so I actually didn't apply to traditional academic jobs, which had always been my, my, my long-term career plans had always been long-term academic career path. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I just, it, it was pretty clear to me that, um, that I was not going to, have probably have many options because I sort of, you know, I didn't have a thing that was my thing. Um, and even, even in my, you know, in my postdoc, I was mostly doing, um, sort of technology development projects. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, so, you know, some people were really successful sort of coming out of that lab. If they like identified a new type of virus and they're like the only person in the lab who studies or in the world who studies that, that type of virus, then, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's sort of their thing. Yep. And there's, you know, there's more work to be done and, um, uh, people didn't appreciate, I think, um, the importance of studying novel viruses then as much as they do this year, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, but, but, but nonetheless, it's yeah. like, you know, that it sort of established you as like, this is sort of my thing. And especially if you had worked on viruses before, it's like, Yes, this is a clear expert in this area, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, I, you know, maybe I would have been more successful than I than I think, but I didn't have confidence to um, uh, sort of, you know, 
set up like I felt like what I my proposal for a lab would be like a new research direction. Yeah. That was not derivative um directly on what I'd been doing before. Yeah. And I don't feel like that's sort of what um what's being looked for in academic job searches. Yeah. Um, I I think that's unfortunate and that's not a unique story. I've like sort of like the best trainee in arthritis i think generally she was under like she won all the awards had great publications went to all the big postdoc labs at least in canada um and her criticism when she was applying to these faculty jobs was that she did too many different things like she started in as like a basic biologist doing like histology and stuff like that um, and then she decided to switch and learn more about epidemiology and sort of population population level problems and more of the public health perspective because this is you know it's it's a disease that has a big burden on the healthcare system and then she went and did next generation sequencing um, which yeah. was novel in the field but you know I think she ended up postdocing for six or seven years as well um, but like she. Th- felt it was a strength for her to understand her disease of interest, which was arthritis, mm-hmm. to take all these different perspectives. And I think yeah. now that she has a job, she is set up to pull on all that diverse knowledge. Yeah. But it was r- a real uphill battle in trying to convince academics that that was a valuable route to pursue. Yeah. And I mean, the other aspect of it too is, you know, and I think this is just the nature of academic job searches like even even though i'd say that i was i was pessimistic about my chances of getting a job um i did have enough sort of you know high impact science that i'd published where um i you know i'm pretty sure i could have gotten a job yeah and i think people um sometimes make um you know sort of overplay how hard it is to get an academic position um i'm not sure it's as hard as people sort of make it seem but one of the reasons is because if you really want to have a good chance of getting an academic position, you have to be willing to go to the whatever academic position happens to be open that yeah. matches up where the department wants someone that matches up with what you can what you can bring. Yeah. Which is going to be in some arbitrary corner of the country or world. Yep. And so there's sort <laughs> of, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to uh, you know, feel good about your chances of getting the job, you can no, you cannot feel good about like there's if there's anywhere in the world that I want to be you know like uh, just a, a place that I enjoy or a place where I have friends um, yeah if you don't care where you're gonna go then you can definitely get an academic job right uh, if you if you care about being in a certain area even a sort of broad geographic area mm-hmm. um, then you know then there aren't very many research institutions in in any area i mean even Mm -hmm. places like boston or the bay area which Mm -hmm. are notable for um uh you know for how many um academic institutions we have you can still count them on your fingers yeah you know these are not like you know so if you have like a you know if you have a a two percent chance at at each place you're you're not going to have a good chance of getting anything in that area you're going to have to broaden it out and yeah you know, I sort of grown up in Southern California and went to college in Northwestern in uh, Evanston, Chicago, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, MIT of so Boston. And then um, 
uh, Bay Area. Um, you know, I moved around and sort of you know started my life over a number yeah. of times. Yeah. And so that was also, and you know, my family was in Southern California, so it's you know I didn't didn't want to leave the coast, and but even extending it across the coast, that doesn't add that many institutions. Yeah. And you know, one of the awesome but also difficult things about you know the um, Californias that we have. Um, a, a very large number of phenomenally excellent institutions. In other words, um, uh, phenomenally competitive institutions, yeah. right? Yeah. So they're um, not the easy ones to get a job at because everyone's knocking on their door, right? Yeah. So, um, so that's you know, um, like that was also part of the part part of the 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 thinking. And so I started to look at um, uh, at industry jobs and. That wasn't what I had ever wanted to do, but you know, part of it was that I, I think I didn't appreciate until I started really looking into and applying for industry jobs, how much diversity of industry jobs there is. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was influenced by the sort of, you know, the academic jobs that, you know, sort of my peers were applying to pretty much all look about the same, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like you're going to have different amounts of space allocated to you, a different size startup package. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes there's some early funding that goes along with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not there's not like that much sort of nuance. Um, mm-hmm. Looking at sort of you know industry jobs, it's like the types of jobs, what they're looking for, and what the experience would be going to like a big pharma versus um, you know sort of like a small startup. It's like those are very different types of experiences yeah. and even, you know, small startups, it really depends on what they're going to be working on. Um, yeah. and it's, you know, and, and I think, and Calico is even like another sort of orthogonal. There's some weird actor. hybrid thing. Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, it's great. And I think, you know, the, um, one of the things that, so I, when I started looking into this Calico didn't exist yet. Um, and so, oh. um, uh, yeah. The, it, yeah, it you was, were one of the first employees, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was, yeah, I was employee number eight, and wow. um, I was really, you know, the thing that really attracted me to Calico from the outside and helped me um, sort of, you know, uh, get in the door. I think is um, is the 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 people that I knew who were affiliated. And when I joined, you know, I mean, I think like everybody who was there was fantastic. But the there were really only two people that I that I really knew, mm-hmm. um, and that was um, uh, David Botstein, um, who's mm-hmm. now my boss. And you yeah, know what I mean, he, <laughs> he had been my the co PhD advisor of my postdoc advisor um, ah. uh, at Stanford. So wow, okay. Um, and he had he had actually done a brief um, little sabbatical at UCSF where I'd gotten to meet him um, uh, a little bit before. Um, uh, before he went to Calico and before I applied to Calico. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being at UCSF, I also um, uh, knew Cynthia Kenyon and, ah, um, yeah. you know, was um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, knew her a, a little bit better. Um, uh, and, um, you know, just like the, the two of them are both, um, you know, they're very different, but they're both inspirational figures And one of the things that they both really have, so there's this, you know, there's this idea that Calico was going to do a lot of basic research. Right. And, um, 
that's something that you hear a lot, you know, I think in <laughs> industry pitches. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's not always easy to, to take seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of examples where sort of that was the pitch and then like you see what happened to the company afterwards that like did not go in all, at all right. in that direction. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, you know, Cynthia and David are both sort of such strong supporters and have a deep appreciation for the practical value of basic scientific research. Mm -hmm. And what really is when I first heard about Calico, I heard that Cynthia was going to be a consultant. And when I heard that she was leaving UCSF where she had been for, you know, her career and where she's, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, a a very powerful figure that she was going to leave UCSF to go to Calico and that, and that David was going to be leaving Princeton to go full time. I was like, you know, that's that's Big. not just like that's that's a that's a commitment. And the company had hardly any, you know, very few other people in it at that point. It's like yeah. that's a, <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's 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 hard to believe that this place won't actually follow through on having a, mm. a commitment to um, to basic research with with those people. Um, yeah, and like Genentech had a pretty good notoriety for doing research right where yeah. art was coming from yeah 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 um although i, I have to admit i didn't um uh, i i wasn't thinking about that um that that as much um mm-hmm. uh it was really um uh it was it, it was really the you know that in retrospect that was you know that was a good thing um that i could appreciate but yeah. um you know but i mean i had never there were there were a number of people who had come from uh from genentech um or at Calico, and um, uh, as I got to know them later, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I, I, I could see that, but I, but I didn't know any of them coming in the door. So, um, so yeah, it was really, um, you know, it was really Cynthia and David who got me excited about um, about Calico, um, nice. and you know, and I think it's, um, you know. Uh, <laughs> It, it wasn't so much. So I think aging is a, is a fascinating field. And one of the things that I love about it is that there are such sort of really fundamental questions yeah. that still remain to be answered. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I've gotten to work on, on, on some of those sorts of projects. Um, uh, but it wasn't, you know, I mean, one of the things that you know, came out of this sort of moving from field to field is that, um, you know, the sort of, maybe this ties up the, the conversation nicely, but, you know, I'm not, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not someone who's like has this the one thing that I think is so important that I want to study. Um, I really, you know, I I, I love this the process of science and yeah. the scientific method and using it to to solve arbitrary problems. Mm-hmm. And I think the problems of aging are some of the better arbitrary problems that you could have. But yeah. it's it's really just the process of science that I love and that um, I saw. You know, a, a great opportunity to uh to do at calico mm-hmm. and i guess the flip side of that is that um you know having done so much basic research very little applied research um uh the um the the appeal and you know since i i hadn't worked in a particular area i think for calico where um uh they wanted to focus on basic research mm-hmm. um and you know, it was early days in the company, so like, what it, what aspects of the vast field of aging to focus <laughs> on were still clear. I think that 
probably that helped make me a little bit more appealing to them as a uh, as as a candidate. Mm-hmm. So there was that you know that that nice fit. I think. Yeah. So like, how did you find out about this opportunity then? Was it just you saw a posting and you applied, or was there a little more of a um, inside track that you heard of? No, I mean, I, I heard. Um, so I heard from my boss Joe, and oh, he was okay. the one who told me that because um, you know since he, he you know he was um, I think he was the department chair at that point for um, ah. uh, the department that that Cynthia was in. So mm. so he he told me a little earlier than it was announced that she was going to okay. be leaving. UCSF. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and he told me, you know, and because he knows David so well, he told me about David and, you know, that really, you know, that's so, so he sort of brought it up with me and, you know, that, that was, that was exactly what I needed to hear to convince me that that's, um, <laughs> you know, that's something that I should be, uh, looking into. Yeah. Yeah. And like, did you have a formal interview process and things or did generally people understand where you were coming from and how you could Tribute. Uh, no, I did. I, I, I don't want to say too formal because since it was so small, um, there was yeah. sort of a, you know, a, an informality to, to, to everything. There weren't a lot of processes set up, you know, so yeah. I had rounds of coming in and talking to people, but, um, uh, it was, you know, it, yeah, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't super structured, you know, it wasn't sort of, um, you know, you go through this level and then we're going to have, you know, it was, it was, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. It was a lot of, it was a lot of opportunities to have some, um, pretty interesting conversations about what, um, you know, what, what could be and, and what would be. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it sounds like you were excited about an opportunity to do something new that was mm-hmm. sort of undefined and, but you had the space to to follow what was important or or the the track that came up organically right um and for me i i think i um i i find that super compelling as well and a big reason why i came here um but the main thing is that the mission or the the goal of the company is so grandiose um, which could seem crazy in many people's eyes, especially back when it started. But the approach is so proven in biology and in, I guess, you know, biotech that there's substance to it that will anchor it in the fundamentals that'll keep it going. And it allows for that exploration, that sort of wide-eyed curiosity, the redefining of things we think we know or exploring stuff we thought we'd never be able to find out um, alongside of that concrete work around the experts, you know, some of the best scientists in the world. Um, so it has a nice tethering, a nice grounding to it that I think is, a, is an amazing balance and why I think it'll work in the end. Um, whereas I think some endeavors in industry in longevity seem a little are a, a, a lot more poorly defined um, mm-hmm. without a specific direction. And and that can kind of spin out, I think. So I think it's a really com- compelling place to be. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy it. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I think I've uh, gotten, 
I, I think I got an even better version of than what I hoped for. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. So, you know, and I, I mean, I think about it, um, in terms of, um, uh, the things that I've, um, published on and, and worked on while I've been at Calico, um, have been following the science and sort yeah. of, you know, sort of each project informing, being informed by the previous project and what I learned from it in terms of where to go. Um, but it hasn't always, you know, stayed in sort of the same area. Mm. And, you know, so I've published um, a paper on, you know, the human genetics of uh, longevity um, right. with, uh, um, uh, with, with ancestry, um, published a paper on um, uh, naked mole rat, um, <laughs> lifespan yeah, so cool. uh, demographics. Yeah. Um, you know, um, those, that, that's sort of a good example of something where, um, you know, if I had been in academics making a jump from one of those to the other, um, you know, would have been, you know, like, like I said, would have been like, not, not feasible. Yeah. Um, I think, um, or would, you know, if I, if I had been like a, you know, sort of a, you know, uh, already a famous scientist, right. you know, at like one of the top institutions, it would have been difficult, but I probably could have done it. But even, even if I was a lot more famous than I am, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the idea of making, those types of big moves in terms of what I study that early in my career um, would not have been, you know, as, as the, the tenure clock is, is kept <laughs> like that would not have been a good idea. Right. right? Not I advisable. Mean, like, like, like in both of those papers from Calico, um, you know, had a nice impact, Yeah, but they're not, um, you know, and, and to me they're sort of thematically connected, but, um, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not in sort of an obvious practical way that I think, you know, would make it appealing to maybe a department, you know, thinking about tenure or, um, so that's, you know, I think that's sort of that ability that I had seen, you know, something that I value about science of being able to sort of work on the next interesting problem. And, you know, if you learn that this is not the thing that, you know, that is going to give you the answer that you, that you want, move to something that is and, yeah. you know, learn that field and, and, and get into it. That's, that, that's a rare opportunity that is hard to find both in industry and in academics. And um, right. so I think that's, that's um, something that I, I feel really fortunate about. Yeah. And I, I would agree. I think it takes a lot of bravery on behalf of, I guess, the, the founders and management to to allow the employees to follow the science, follow the important questions, whether they have to cross fields or not. And really, it seems that management is is there to help facilitate those questions being answered. So mm-hmm. if you need help, you need to pull in other resources and people, then that's what they'll do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree. Like, it... I haven't been here too long, but you know, all that people have said to me has been the truth and, and, and more. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's great. And, uh, I'm really glad that we're getting to work together and it seems yeah. more and more over the time here. It's been an absolute pleasure. And it's a lot of fun working with you, Matt. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you today. <laughs> yeah. And thanks so much for doing this for, you know, spending your weekend time where you should be relaxing, talking to me. Um, this is very I, relaxing. I, I've, <laughs> I've been very relaxed. So. <laughs> Good. Um, but this, this was super enlightening to me, and I've had a great time. So thank you so much. 
Thank you, Matt. All right. This has been Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis with more to come.